there, I'm your host Rebecca and thanks for joining Hope Awakens again or perhaps you're joining for the first time, welcome. You know, I still can't get over last night's program on the return of Jesus Christ. What hope the Bible holds out to every single person on planet earth. We live in a world that sometimes feel like one of those old merry-go-rounds that you can't get off when you really want to, which is why I can hardly wait for tonight's program, Rest and Recovery. But before we join John, Gary has some questions to answer. Gary, I'm really enjoying this question time. What have the viewers sent in for tonight? Hi, Rebecca. Well, we've got some great questions again this evening. Let's go to question number one. I've always thought Jesus was coming secretly for his friends based on the fact that Jesus and Paul said he will come as a thief in the night. That's Matthew 24, verse 42 to 44. Well, that's a very good question. Let's have a look at that. Let's go to the text. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore be you also ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect him. Now notice the emphasis on the unexpectedness of Christ's coming. Not coming silently, but when we don't expect it, that's the emphasis. And Peter says his coming will be like a thief as well, but with a great noise. Notice these words from Second Peter. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Second Peter 3 verse 10. Well, I hope that helps regarding a thief in the night. Let's go to question number two. Here it is. Why is the return of Jesus called the blessed hope? Well, that's a very good question. First of all, let's notice from the two passages why it's called the blessed hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55. 1 Thessalonians says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. What a hope. You see, if we die, we've put our trust in Jesus, we'll come to life and we'll meet our loved ones again and we'll be with Jesus forever. That's pretty hopeful, isn't it? Now notice what Paul says to his friends in Corinth. Behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. No wonder you see it's called the blessed hope because he says we're going to get new eternal bodies. That's bodies that can't die, can't get sick and wear out. That's a tremendous hope. You and I, you see, we need to be ready for this second coming because what a hope it is. New bodies, new life and eternal life. Question three. I've watched some films where 
the Antichrist appears after Jesus comes. Could you tell where, me where this is found? Well, actually, the Bible teaches that the Antichrist, and Pastor John will talk about Antichrist later on, the Bible says he appears before Jesus returns. Now, Paul calls Antichrist the man of sin or the man of lawlessness in his passages. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that's his second coming, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as from us as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, that's the coming of Jesus, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So Paul is very plain, you see. He says, Antichrist is going to come before Jesus comes for his friends. Well, that's it for tonight as far as questions go, Rebecca. Thanks, Gary. I really like the way you and Robbie answer the questions, clearly and simply and straight from the Bible. I'm sure our viewers really appreciate it too. Now with you, I'm looking forward to tonight's program by Pastor John Bradshaw entitled Rest and Recovery. Let's join him now. An hour or so northeast of Manhattan, New York City, on the banks of the Hudson River, is the little town of Irvington, New York. Residents past and present make up something of a who's who list. Irvington has been the home to John Jacob Astor, at the time the wealthiest man in the United States, to Sun Myung Moon, and to all sorts of people in between. Today, Irvington is home to Rip Van Winkle, or at least a statue of Rip Van Winkle. It's located across the road from the fire station on Main Street. Rip Van Winkle was the, was the creation of author Washington Irving. Irvington was named in his honor. Irving wrote the story in 1819. In the story, a man falls asleep in the Catskill Mountains, somewhere Irving said he'd never even been, and he wakes up 20 years later to find that he has missed the American Revolution and that his little village has changed. Now, as important as sleep is, that might just be overdoing it. In fact, the Bible says something interesting about sleep. This is Proverbs 20 and verse 13. Do not love sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread. Now, really, that's an injunction against laziness. Proverbs 26, 14 says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. The next verse says, the lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and it wearies him to bring it back to his mouth, which is almost comical, really. But it's important to get sleep. Losing sleep can cause hallucinations and psychosis and long-term memory impairment. Some studies have linked uh, sleep deprivation to chronic conditions like hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes, and bipolar disorder. Japanese researchers found that sleep deprivation has profound effects on the immune system. People who get less than six hours sleep a night have a higher risk of coronary heart disease, their blood pressure is higher, their cholesterol is worse, and those who consistently don't get enough quality sleep are 60% more at risk of having a heart attack, high blood pressure, or a stroke. Poor sleep habits can even change your DNA by impacting the signals that control how our genes operate on a day-to-day -day basis. You see, each one of us has a circadian clock it uses basically a 24-hour rhythm and coordinates with the Earth's light-dark cycle. That word circadian, it comes from two Latin words, circa, meaning about, and 
diem, meaning day. Light-sensitive cells in your eyes send information to your brain's master clock, which readjusts daily. That master clock regulates temperature and eating patterns, all sorts of things going on in your body. And then cellular clocks throughout your body react so they can be in tune with the master clock. When you continually mix that up, the result can be chronic degenerative diseases. So apparently, getting enough rest is important. It seems it's also important for the world to get rest. That's a biblical concept. In Exodus 23, God said, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. The next book of the Bible after Exodus is Leviticus, and in chapter 25 God said, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Evidently, it was good for the land to get rest, to rejuvenate. This was in a time before people understood crop rotation and modern agricultural practices. It's clear this rest was designed to help the poor and also to curb materialism, to put a check on the gaining of wealth. Now, think about what's going on in the world right now. Have you seen the photos of some of the world's major cities showing how pollution is disappearing? Cities like New Delhi, India, where their air pollution is truly hideous, Now there's clean air, as though Delhi was transported to the Swiss Alps. Pollution levels have dropped precipitously in China. It's 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 a wonder to behold how we've gone from dirty air to clean air. In Venice, Italy, fish are back swimming in the canals. Animals are reappearing in places where they're not usually seen. And of course, that's in most cases due to there being far fewer people about. It seems that even nature enjoys a rest. So we understand sleep. We understand coyotes hanging around the Golden Gate Bridge, seeing they've got the place to themselves now. But what about emotional rest, mental rest? What about spiritual rest? What about the problem of stress, where so many people are slaves to the go, go, go creed to which this world adheres? What can we do to quiet the inner turmoil, the lack of inner peace? the gnawing sense of futility that so often accompanies so much of what we do. Where can a person find real meaning in their lives? In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's something called The World Happiness Report, it ranks 156 countries by how happy their citizens perceive themselves to be, supported by the University of Oxford and other major organizations. The cities at the bottom of that list, Kabul, Afghanistan, Sana'a in Yemen, Gaza, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and Juba in South Sudan. And we could understand why big challenges there. The five 
happiest cities in the world, and this is this year, number one, Helsinki, Finland. Number two, Aarhus, Denmark. Number three, Wellington, New Zealand. Number four, Zurich, Switzerland. And number five, Copenhagen in Denmark. Highest ranking Australian city, Brisbane. Came in number 10. Highest ranking city in the United States, Washington, D.C., which almost inexplicably ranks number 18th globally. Now, these are subjective. This is how people see themselves. But look at how David saw himself when he wrote in Psalm 16 and verse 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness, fullness of joy, where? In the presence of God. Remember how God designed it all. Adam and Eve evidently spoke with God face to face. After sin, God asked that a sanctuary be built so that he could dwell in the midst of his people. Jesus was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the God of heaven isn't aloof. He's not remote. He isn't distant. He wants to be with us, which means he wants the closest relationship possible. And right back at creation, God did something to ensure that he and we would have an unbroken bond, a connection. God did something to show us that he would always have time for us and to encourage us to make time for him. The Bible starts with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. On the first creation day, God made light, saying, let there be light. And there was light. On day two, God made the sky and the sea. Day three, the land and vegetation. Day four, the sun, moon and stars. Day five, sea creatures and birds. On day six, animals and people. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Bible record is clear. We were carefully designed. We were crafted by a great creator God. We're all aware that there's controversy about that in some circles. The idea of creation calls for you to exercise faith. Well, how did a God just create everything that we see? Well, if you believe he was able to bring water out of a rock or feed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch, this is not too much for you. If you have faith in the Bible, you'll have read where it says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You find that in Psalm 33. How did God create the universe? He spoke. He spoke and it came into existence. Is that hard to believe? No harder than believing that an eye is the result of evolution. The eye is made up of more than two million working parts. The retina in a human being has approximately six million cones and 120 million rods. One eye. Those 120 million rods are photoreceptors, light receivers. The six million cones see color. They're divided into red, green, and blue. The eye is a camera, an extremely good one. And you can imagine that just coming into existence on its own. Can you? Even Charles Darwin wrote in his book, The Origin of Species, 
to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest sense. Since Darwin sailed around the world on the HMS Beagle in the first half of the 1830s, the idea of evolution has become more and more popular. With it, the concept of God as creator and even of God as God has really been damaged. And let's ask why that is. It's not that people have become more intelligent. It's not because of better education. It's because there is a deliberate campaign going on in the universe to undermine Jesus and to separate our hearts from God. It happened in heaven. It happened in the Garden of Eden. And it has been going on ever since. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the creator. John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. I know there are a lot of thinking, intelligent, even God-fearing people who've taken hold of evolutionary theory. I'd like to encourage you tonight to instead take hold of the Bible. It's not fundamentalism. It isn't crankiness. It isn't old-fashioned. It's simply faith in God. So God created for six days. But even though Adam and Eve had been created, creation wasn't yet finished. Genesis 2 verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. God was not tired, but ceasing from that work and enjoying his completed creation. He gave us a memorial of his creative power. Memorials are good. They help us to remember. Here, God gave us a memorial of his power to create and recreate. A memorial to help us to remember who God is, the creator. And who we are, his children, the works of his hands. Genesis 2 verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. What an amazing concept. Right back at creation, God built into the calendar a time for rest and recovery. His idea was that we would take a day out. Time out, that we would shut out the regular pressures of the world and take that time to spend with him and focus on spiritual growth, spiritual well-being. And you notice that God sanctified the day. He consecrated it, hallowed it, set it aside. He made clear it was a special day. And what's really interesting about this is that it's all tied together with God's last day gospel message. The message he says will go to the entire world before everything is done. Revelation 14, starting in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. Now you saw that. 
worship and who made. That's worship Jesus at a time in the stream of time when the whole world will be following after a different power according to the book of Revelation. And God says, take time out. Remember the Sabbath day. I've set time aside for you and me to get together, to commune, to spend in each other's presence. In fact, this creation week, six days of creation and then a day of rest, is the reason we have a seven-day week at all. Our week today harkens back to the first week of the world, the creation week right back at the very beginning. God showed us how special this day is. He blessed it. He sanctified it. He rested on it. He was careful to show us he was making this day a special day. Imagine if people put the brakes on life just enough to set a day aside for God. You think we'd have nearly the problems we have in the world right now if people were mindful of God and of their relationship to him? And this was important to God. He included this in the Ten Commandments. He wrote those with his own finger on tables of stone. God wanted this for us. And as he doesn't force our will, God was hoping we would want it for us as well. And when God gave the commandments, he spoke a little differently about this one. This wasn't a thou shalt or a thou shalt not. God started this one by saying, remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor into all of your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. That's Exodus chapter 20. So clearly this wasn't new. This couldn't be something that they were not familiar with. God said, remember, the Sabbath was given in the Garden of Eden and his people had incorporated this into their lives ever since. And you'll notice the wording God uses. He indicates how important this is. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Notice that. It's not the Sabbath of this person or that person. It's not the Sabbath of the Jews or of the Gentiles. It's God's day. The originator of the Sabbath is the creator himself. The Sabbath wasn't just reserved for one race of people. It's not a Jewish institution any more than Thou shalt not kill was reserved only for Jews or thou shalt not commit adultery. The Sabbath was created by God 2,300 years before the existence of the Jewish race. Exodus 20 verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So is this for us today or is it simply a relic of a bygone era? Thankfully, it's for us today too. Where did anyone get the idea that God would say to people back then, you'll get a blessing, you get to rest, you get to spend this special time with God, but you poor souls down there in the 21st century, not for you. No, this is one of the Ten Commandments. Now, don't think people do this in order to be saved. The rule we're remembering is, People who have encountered God will love to do God's will. Ezekiel 20, verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. 
That's God saying this is given by him to us for a special purpose. He's saying the Sabbath is a sign that God makes us holy. In other words, it's a sign that God is the creator and the recreator. Look at how Jesus modeled this. Luke 4, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth. This is Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So which day should be kept as the Sabbath day? There are seven days in a week. Is one just as good as another? Well, we'll find out what the Bible recommends. In Luke chapter 23, we read this. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Luke 24 verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. Now here's what we know. Jesus died on the preparation day. We call that Good Friday. He rose on the first day of the week. You might call that Easter Sunday. And he rested on the day in between, which was the Sabbath, the day we would call today in English, Saturday. Right there between Friday and Sunday, boom, the Sabbath. Even your dictionary will tell you that Sunday is the first day of the week. Oh, yes, it is. But Saturday is the seventh day of the week. In Spanish, Saturday is sábado. In Russian, subota. In Italian, sábado. Many languages of the world simply use the word Sabbath for Saturday. On that first ever Sabbath, Jesus rested from his work of creation. Then after he died on the cross... He rested on the Sabbath from his work of redemption. Now, some confusing things get said about this. And I'd like you to be thinking about why that might be. Someone will say, ah, but we're not under the law, which you well know is 100% true. Even though we're not under the law, we still want to do God's will. I don't know many people who think that they're not under the law So therefore, they should drive through the downtown at 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometers an hour. We do right because Jesus lives his life in us, not because we're trying to prove anything to God. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Do not think that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. It's so important to God. He wrote it with his own finger on tables of stone. Not something he wants us to forget. Someone said these are the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. The Sabbath is a memorial of creation, just like the Fourth of July or another holiday, national holiday would be a memorial. And you can't change that. You wouldn't want to. 
Those memorials exist to remind us that something was done by someone special. We know that Jesus observed the Sabbath. Why did he do that? He said in John 15, 10, I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And remember, Jesus as the lawgiver and as the creator instituted the Sabbath on this earth. So did God make any changes to this when Jesus died? Well, the best way to find out is to look at the example of Jesus' followers. What did they do after Jesus had died? Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 2. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ. This is Paul. He believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's remembering the Sabbath day. Acts 16, 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Acts chapter 13, starting in 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. I want you to notice these were Jews and then Gentiles, non-Jews. They weren't beholden to Jewish worship practices, but they knew that corporate worship happened on the Sabbath. And that's why they mentioned that. If there'd been some kind of change, they would have said, let's do this any old time. Acts thirteen forty four. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. This was in Antioch. So we see where God says he has something special for us, a gift. In fact, in fact, Jesus says in Mark 2 that the Sabbath was made for man, that's humankind, and not man for the Sabbath. It was made for you. And those are the best gifts, aren't they? Where someone made something for you makes it special. God made this gift for you, and it's special. You know, I remember hearing someone say, the Sabbath isn't in the New Testament. Well, we've already seen it was right there in the book of Acts, but let me show you this. Looking in the Bible, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he says to the people, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem took place in the year 70 AD. As a matter of fact, the magnificent Colosseum in Rome, that was funded, it was paid for by the spoils taken from the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So that anchors this thing in time. Looking ahead four decades to 70 AD, Jesus said, the Sabbath will still be important to you then. So no, there was never any change made, nor would there be any need for one. Now, what might cause confusion is that when Jesus died on the cross, he brought an end to the system of types and ceremonies, which for thousands of years had pointed to his death on the cross. A transition took place away from the ceremonies and towards eternal realities. The ceremonial law was no longer to be kept. No more animal sacrifices, no more annual feast days. But the Ten Commandments, well, of course, they are still important to God. 
the Bible tells us that a day starts and ends at sunset. So the Sabbath day is, is observed from sunset to sunset, from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. You get to push a release valve. You get to exhale. You get to rest deeply in the love and goodness of God, knowing that he is your maker and you are his child. You push aside secular responsibilities for a day. So we know the Sabbath was given at creation, kept by the followers of God, honored by Jesus, kept by his followers after his death. Come on now, let's take this thing one step further. In Isaiah 66, you read, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, that's from month to month, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. The Sabbath day will even be kept in the new earth long after we go to heaven. Jesus said, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. If we're going to worship God as creator throughout eternity, it seems logical we should worship him as creator here. We recognize God as creator because because he is the creator. We recognize God as God because he made us in the beginning. This is what separates the true God from false gods. In the beginning, God created. He gives us the Sabbath day to remember that, to live in relation with him based on that principle. We don't want to just know that God has given it to us. We want to know why he's given it to us. He's our maker and he knows best. I'm thankful God extends this Sabbath to us as a gift today. Workaholics get a chance to take a break. Families get a chance to regroup. God says this busy life is going to push you. It's going to push you to overdo it. So take a deep breath, step back, rest a little. This is quality time, quality time with God, time for worship. It's time with family, quality time, uninterrupted by regular concerns and our secular work. Time made holy by the creator for us to enjoy his presence and grow in his love. Remember what David said? In God's presence is fullness of joy and we're not getting enough of it. And we're missing so much if we are ignoring the blessing of the Sabbath. Yes, the earth needs to be managed carefully. That's correct. But we need to guard ourselves spiritually as well. And God says, this is for rest and recovery. Now, I want you to think about what this says about God. It means that God wants to enhance our lives. He wants to bless us with more of his presence. He wants us to be happier than we've been. He wants to be the focus of our lives like never before. God wants you to get the most out of life. That's why he says, here's a special gift. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Spend time with me. Now, I know that somebody might say, I will keep every day holy. Now, I know what you mean. You want to love God, serve God, worship God every day. That's right. Amen to that. But God hasn't asked us to keep every day holy. 
we can only keep something holy that God has made holy. Now, I don't want you to think that the fourth commandment is somehow more important than the others. But the problem is that most people seem to think it's less important than the others. If you're breaking one, it hurts the Lord as much as you're breaking another. James 2 verse 10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Remember, Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. He wasn't saying, if you love me, go and prove it. He was saying, if you love me, something wonderful is going to happen in your life. I think we'd make a mistake if we thought about this only as a matter of breaking God's law. The problem is when we ignore the commandments of God, we break God's heart. God is wanting to add to your experience with him. You don't want to make the mistake of saying, that's not what I've done all my life. I'm not about to change now. Really? Instead of that, how about you pray and ask God to make clear his will for your life? The Christian who loves God wants God's will to be done. You know, when smartphones were introduced, not very many people said they wanted to stick with the old rotary phone on the wall of their home. When I was a child, you know, my mother had an agitator washing machine. The thing had a ringer, which you need to be wary of. But my mother didn't decide that she would stick with the old agitator washing machine forever. She moved with the times. That's appropriate. Does God want us to make progress spiritually? Oh, yes, of course he does. Sometimes he shows us new things because he wants more for us. And we're always happier when we grow in our faith in God. You listen to this and you realize that God wants more for you. He wants to bless you more. Back in 1975, a man who worked on the assembly line at the Fiat Auto Factory in Turin in Italy stopped on his way home from a police auction where items found on city trains were sold to the highest bidder. Now, the man spotted two paintings. He saw them. He said, they look nice on the wall above our kitchen table. The auctioneer told him they were garbage found on a train that ran between Paris and Turin in Italy's northwest. So the man bid and bid and bid, and the bidding went up. He outbid another man, and he paid oof, the princely sum of about $30. After the man retired, his son, who was taking an art appreciation class, discovered one of the paintings was by the French painter Pierre Bonnard, and the other was by Paul Gauguin. They were originals, and they're worth around $50 million dollars. And because insurance had paid out and the original owners had no heirs, the retired auto worker got to keep his paintings, bought at auction for 30 bucks. And now they're worth 50 million. They were there on his wall all those years, but unappreciated for what they really were. He didn't know the value of what he had. The Sabbath has been there all the time, but many people have simply never realized the value of what they have. Now we know. A special day, blessed by God quality time, time God wants to spend with you. We know we've got something precious in Jesus. He gives us the good gifts. And Jesus is coming back soon to take us home. Well, that's amazing. To think that God wants to spend a whole day with each of us every week. What an amazing God. And being a type A person, I love work and I love working hard and long, I'm so glad that he actually included the Sabbath in his Ten Commandments. 
because it helps me to take it seriously. Because God's law is not the Ten Suggestions, but the Ten Commandments. And because I love Him, I now keep His commandments, and it really helps me unwind. And I look forward to the Sabbath each week. It's like a paradise island in time spent with God, with family, and with friends. Rebecca, John has a study guide and another free resource called God's Eternal Sign. How can our viewers get these? Sure, Gary. Our viewers tonight can get the study guide and the free resource, God's Eternal Sign, by going to our website, hopeawakens.com.au, and click on Free Offer. Like you, Gary, I really enjoyed tonight's program, and it's helped me so much. I'm really looking forward to the next one, Going It Alone. Sounds fascinating. Thanks for joining us again tonight. We'll see you tomorrow night at the same time. Good night. Good night.